Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the Issue to Comedy podcast. My guest this week, uh, I always cease to amaze myself of who I can kind of grab it and, and get a hold of it and chit chat with. Um, no stranger to the stand up world, but you may know him best from driving a cab around the streets of Toronto asking you questions for absurd amount of money, maybe, maybe absurd. I don't know how many, what, what the highest jackpot ever won was on Cash Cab. But uh, thank you for joining me, Mr. Adam Grow. How are you? Oh, I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here to talk to you about comedy. You should do comedy. If you're not doing comedy already, you should do comedy. And the absurd amount of money that people win on Cash Cab, what's absurd to me about it is sometimes how little. Really, at the end of the day, when you think about it, people win and they're still like ecstatic. It's like they've won a million bucks. It's because of the the random vibe in the cab. So even when a group of three or four people win 600 bucks, they're celebrating like it was a million. It's well, great. that's what's kind of amazes me because it it sets it's it's not the money, it's the experience, right? It's yeah, it's yeah. the hoopla of it all, which yeah. sort of is exactly what comedy is. You you're there and you're experiencing a crazy kind of vibe that only takes place in a room full of 300 people in a dark dungeon club that only yeah. you and one guy with a microphone or girl with a microphone is sharing. And you're all kind of in that moment. How did you sort of break into this stand-up world? Because you've worn many hats in your career. Um, let, let me get this straight. You were born in New York, raised in Vancouver, and now work in Toronto. So my pathway to stand-up has been not necessarily traditional from a stand-up's perspective, I don't think. I think that I looked at stand-up as another opportunity for me to be on the mic. I've always loved to be on the mic. And in fact, I started my entertainment career in radio on the mic. Leading up to that, I had done stand-up amateur-wise, and I'd been like a host of all sorts of different events through school, through university. Then about five to seven, you know, about five years into my radio career, I was in between jobs and back in Toronto and just like, well, maybe I'll go back to that and, and check it out. And so I always, I always make sure to define to, to my abilities as a standup are I'm an entertainer, I'm a comedian, but I really have a lot of respect to the standups that are, that's what they do. You know, they, that's what, you know, other things like hosting are kind of like the sidebar. I happen to be great on the mic. I love performing and stand up is one of the things that I enjoy. And I've had a reasonable amount of success doing. I loved your kind of analogy with how the cash cab is very much like a, an intimate stand up environment. And I absolutely agree that all the time I spent on stage doing stand up and being in the moment and working with a crowd sometimes as as stand up comedians know you're not working with 900 people in a big theater sometimes you're working with less than 50 in like a a one nighter in a bar that has no business doing stand up in the <laughs> in the first place and you're just like we're going to make it work and so there you know that that environment even though people are very on board and very ready to participate when they land and get surprised in the cash cab i have to work that room a hundred percent and make sure that they oh, feel yeah. comfortable that they can be themselves. And and I think that that's really the, the competitive advantage of cash cab. When you look at the, the world of television, but specifically the genre of uh, reality competition series or game shows, it's, it's high density fun in that space that in, 
you know, I absolutely am first and foremost a host, but it helps to have the skills of a stand-up behind the behind the wheel of the cash cab. Do you think that that always has sort of been your your wheelhouse? Because even when you mentioned radio, I mean, gone are the old days of the man behind the man, uh, the mic, the mysterious sort of person talking to you through radio. But you have that. If you look at it, you have that sort of same experience. You're you're there on a microphone talking to your audience, tuning in to listen to you. I understand it's on a dial, and it, you know it's it's back in the day, and now as everything is podcasted and everything is looking for shock reality. And did you hear what they said about this on that and all that stuff? But it, it, you you sort you have a certain sort of what's the word je ne sais quoi as they say uh, when it comes to <laughs> uh, connecting with an audience because your professions all sort of relate in that experience whether it's in a car on a stage behind a microphone you may be talking to the masses but really you're just talking to one person and it, essentially that's where it all needs to stem from you got to start small you got to start at one person in order for it to branch out to reach a bigger audience and i think that's where you excel because clearly talking to you right now i hear the radio in you uh, it's so it's so formality it's just you yes you would think that someone who speaks so eloquently in the, in the style and the manner and uh, in which you, you speak is, is, is done radio. When did that all start? Was that a Vancouver thing? Was that a, when did you, when was the initial sort of, I want to do this, you know, get behind a mic and, and do radio. Well, it was probably rooted in my growing up in Vancouver, doing theater, doing skits for, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the, the classmates. And I eventually landed in a position on student council when I was in high school, when I was doing the morning announcements. And Uh, I was also, I was also the person like, you know, on student council, there's always people who love to be behind the scenes and, and run kind of the politics of student council. And then there's the person that's like, well, we need someone to host this. So I was always the one on student council that ended up getting the mic. And, you know, I was famous in, in my last year of high school for doing the morning announcements and hosting the airband contest, which was twice a year, which was, you know, airband was a big <laughs> thing back in high school for, for old fellows yep. like me. And so I was the host and doing morning announcements was my first experience writing, you know, not only just telling people what's going on, but trying to be funny. I was writing little skits, uh, doing sketches with other people that I would wrangle, kind of like you wrangled me and other guests to be on the show. So you become <laughs> a bit of a mini producer and you really get a sense of how to communicate with your audience. In that case, it was the student body. And whether I was self-aware about that or not, doesn't matter. You just start defining the skills that are there. And That And for sure, professionally in radio, after, you know, I was full-time in radio for about five to seven years and then part-time for a few years after that, the actual skill of always really thinking about, especially, you know, when you are in in small market radio, like I did for most of my career, I ended up in Toronto eventually, you are alone in the booth. You're not, you don't even, you don't have a morning crew, like it's just you (laughs) and you've got to talk to what you hope are hundreds of thousands of people listening to you and you really have to put that theater in your mind in terms of who you're speaking with and so for me that definitely translated to success in the different areas of my career whether it be stand-up or corporate events or hosting cash cab or hosting other shows but that's again the balance right when i when i bring it back to the art of stand-up comedy specifically now sketch and improv and uh and other styles of comedy 
might be very different with this regard, but my background, certainly from a comedy pr perspective, is stand-up specifically. And the balance of the art of stand-up is, in some senses, a stand-up comedian is just going to do their material regardless of the audience. And a lot of them stand by that. And right. there's an expectation that the audience will come with you. And I have a lot of respect for that because I never approached it that way. I was always about whatever audience I'm performing in front of, I change not necessarily all of my material, but I'm crafting material to, to cater to my audience. And a lot of comic standups don't believe that that's true. Right. But mm -hmm. there is a balance. So like, that's the question a lot of stands up standups ask is like, why am I not getting booked for, for this festival or for this TV series? Or why am I not getting headliner at this club? And it might be because you need to make subtle adjustments to make sure that you're delivering to the audience that those bookers or producers or festival organizers are trying to get. But I would never, someone who authentically is a stand-up and says, you know, I'm doing my material. It doesn't matter. I would never steer them away from that truth to right. suggest right. that you need to kind of become like an Adam Grow and kind of always de deliver to an audience. But it might help you answer some questions on how you can book a festival you feel is within your grasp to make a little bit of a subtle change to attract or convey that you're prepared. Like I would, I would remember getting booked at, at my favorite clubs downtown and other comics who I thought were absolutely hilarious that would never get booked there or not as often because the audience was a lot of like tourists and middle of the road. And th the booker just couldn't take a risk. He, the bookers might've loved the stand-up comics, but from a, you know, a ticket sales standpoint, I, I he, they couldn't take a risk. So I kind of always saw that, that business savvy part of it. And which is why right. I have a lot of respect and, and kind of, you know, make sure to separate the, the art form and that it's, it's really essential that the, those stand-up comics that are really true to that art, don't deny that, don't undermine that, but it can answer some of the questions as to why they're not living in certain spaces. And then they, then they'll maybe go, then now that I understand, I'm not going to waste my time and energy trying to get those spaces. You know what I mean? Like they'll, right. they won't feel as if I'm not getting my shot. It's like, well, maybe it's not the right space for you. Right. And you can focus <laughs> your energy on the, the rooms and the festivals and the TV shows that are up your alley. That's, that's the balance. I think. Do you feel that all comedians should be the host of like the host of something like whenever there is an award show, it should always be booked by a comedian the same way when you have a game show, it should always be looked upon as like your host should be a comic because they're the most versatile to deal with a lot of emotions that people possess. I mean, personality is a crazy thing. There are a zillion of them out there and you never know what you're going to get and you never know what can happen in a live setting. So what sort of personality to be the maestro to orchestrate all of that than a comic? I mean, do they make the perfect host? Well, they can. I think overall, if you looked at actors, comedians, musicians, who are you most likely to get the best host? But at the same time, there are exceptions to the rule. And there are, you know, like Jan Arden is mm -hmm. one of the best hosts I've ever seen of anything. She's and surprisingly funny. <laughs> she's, she's really funny. She's really nimble uh, and obviously very talented as a musician. But mm -hmm. if you look at the, the total population of recording artists, you're going to have a less 
per capita who are also great hosts. Uh, whereas if you took the total population of stand-up comedians or sketch or improv comedians, um, then you're going to have a higher percentage of them that are better hosts. So for me, if you're if you're a comedian listening right now and you think that you would be a great host for a television show or an awards show, you have to be prepared to put your host at hat on first, right? For me, I'm always a host first, so it makes sense. That's why I get a lot of corporate gigs where they go, well, we were thinking about a comedian, but we can't take the risk of a comedian because we don't want it to go in this direction. They need to be able to trust that whoever's going to be doing that is not going to make it about them and then go off in a, in a tangent. And that's why I say, if there, if you're a comedian, you go, I would not be able to do I've some of the people that are my contemporaries in stand up would admit front and center. I would not do that. I cannot take a corporate gig because if they tell me not to say this material, I'm for sure going to say that material. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the approach, right? There is this famous viral video going on uh, right now that's being reshared about Norm Macdonald and why he, his uh, career at, a, at Saturday Night Live ended because they were telling him not to do the OJ jokes. And he was like, right. I'm going to do more OJ jokes. When you tell me not to do that, that, you know, like that's the quintessential comic attitude and i was a host first and so you could be you can be lean towards more of a stand-up comedy artist and if you say i i still need to make a living i still need to pay some make some money and pay some bills and i still have fun and i'm prepared in this environment it's not about me but i'm also ready if something happens in the moment and you know those are the moments i love the most the same as i loved when i was hosting uh, a, a weekend of stand-up comedy in a club those moments that you can't write that happen with your relationship with the audience that are spontaneous, a comic can latch onto those and bring those to life in ways that everybody knows, even if they're not discerning comedy viewers, they know this happened here and it will never happen anywhere else again. And it was, you know, appropriate and didn't go off in any other directions. That's where as a comedian, you can really add so much to an event that someone who can't think on their feet like right, they right, don't right. have that skill. So I think your your instincts are right that uh, comics would be the overall best host, but some comics make every moment about them. They can't shift the gears from a comedy club when they're the headliner to an event, an award show on television when it's it's about the winners, not them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some are true that they, yeah, much like the Norm MacDonald clip you're referencing, live and die by the sword of, of comedy and, and to what's funny and more importantly, what's funny to them. I mean, yeah. you know, if you have a specific brand of humor, that's what you're going to, you know, rest your hat on. And, and I always find that amazing. And, and, and it, it's amazing that we we're discussing sort of the crowd work and engaging with the audience because so many comics today in a social media era, always post their crowd work clips. It's easy burn material. You don't have to post your, your bits. You don't have to post your jokes online. You post engagements with the crowd, but then crowds now often think, Oh, I'm part of the show. So yeah. I can just go to any show and just speak my mind and a funny bit will be on it. And it'll be on Instagram or TikTok, and I'll be a part of this guy's comment. Well, that's not necessarily how it works, but it's a way to show engagement that a is specific, unique, it happened, like you said, it's a one in a lifetime moment and it happened in that room at that place at that time with that person. And it was funny, but for other people, they had this sort of skewed mentality of now stand up comedy is like this group effort. No, 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I use a business term for that. And I this is how I continue to further alienate myself in the comedy arts world by speaking business language. But I think to me, that represents a false economy, right? Uh-huh. It's not it's not real. That's not how we really want it to work. And if you really think about, at least in my time in the trenches, and I and I don't do as much club work as I used to, obviously, uh, or, you know, I shouldn't say, obviously, I'm trying to get back into some more club work, but I just haven't been in the comedy trenches. But after more than a quarter of a century working in, in the comedy environment, I certainly feel as if it's still accurate that the actual number of stand-up comedians who are exceptional and can build an entire act around crowd work is very few. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not the main element of anybody's show. We mostly want to do our material, right? And then we live in a couple of moments where something happens where it, you incorporate that into the magic and the waves that are, you know, that, that you as an artist with your audience are manufacturing throughout and you've got your timed bits and your material and you can't adjust if something happens and then you let that live. If you're a talented artist and then you bring it back to your material, that's the magic of it. And frankly, I also believe that the audience, whether they're aware of it or not, are counting on you to do that. They actually don't want to listen to people in the crowd for 45 minutes, right? It's not what they paid a ticket for. They want to hear you're the pro, but if you are the, you know, the, the leader of the room and you can bring it back to you and, and and it's just incredible to see. And so what happens is we're at this critical juncture where I think humans have generally felt this anyway. But now that social media, everybody thinks they're an influencer and they have a platform and they think they have something to say, and it's all about them in the digital media world, they also think it's all about them when they're in the audience. And to me, it was always a frustrating thing, not even only with random people. It got to the point where I stopped even inviting friends and family to come see me perform. I mean, my wife had to stop because it was so cringy for her, but uh <laughs> Eventually, I found when friends or family came down to a show that I was headlining, the familiarity that they have with me made it like, you know, they felt that they had the license to contribute, right? They, right it's just right, right. Adam up there. And they think they're contributing. And this is the quintessential heckler who comes up to you after the show, especially the Canadian heckler who comes up to you after the show and says, that was great, right? I really helped out. And he's like, you're like, no, no, I was trying to get away from you. The whole show was fun for a bit, but then you, you know, like we as humans have this tendency to make it about us. So audience members who are now thinking they're digital media influencers, also seeing this abundance of crowd work on stand-up comedies, stand-up comics, social media platforms. Now they're going with the intent that it is a community effort in some shows. I I mean, you know, I'm not an improv artist, but even improv shows where they're going to the audience for feedback and stuff, they still have their large chunks where they're not looking for your feedback for a while. (laughs) They want to perform for a while. Uh, So I just feel like you're right. There's this big backlash right now that the triple threat, you know, people think they, they have a voice all the time. They're seeing it on standup comedy and, um, and it's being rewarded because comics are not, they don't want to burn their bits. 
So they're, they want to get the metrics. They want to get the likes and the, and the views by putting mm-hmm. this crowd work up that gets them laughs. Uh, and uh, so I, I think it's a, an unfortunate time, but like anything else, it'll pan out at the end of the day, the acts that are the strongest with the best material and have that artistic ability to navigate crowd work are the ones that are going to be there for the long term. Uh, the people who are sharing bits right now that are really not that funny, don't have a lot of written material and uh, are just going for the the metrics online. And it's just, it's just a vacuum of nothing. It right. just won't yeah, survive. Yeah, I, the yeah. audiences will, will catch on. They'll go to, you'll go to a show for a while and then you'll say, uh, you know, it wasn't actually that funny. It was just a, about three or four random funny moments and nobody had any material right so they'll, well, there's, they'll a very, go there's a very popular comic out right now matt rife who's under fire for having that same sort of stigma attached to him great crowd work but then he released a netflix special and people are like nah i didn't find that funny and it was all hype over his engagements again was built and branded and 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 built up on social media and now it's kind of come to some sort of crossfire but bringing it back to, to crowd work essentially two killers stone cold killers that come to mind uh and they're both canadian are russell peters and sugar sammy who can actually take they're, they're thespians of the segue take something and out of nothing and and, and yeah. turn it into a glorious bit and um i often wonder if that is a skill set you acquire over time um or is that something that you're sort of it comes with the stigma of stand-up, the sarcasm, the ability not to sort of roast one another or roast the crowd, but or sort of have that chip on your shoulder when you're on stage. Have you ever come across any of that? Well, like I said, for Cash Cab, it was an absolutely essential skill. So when th- there's the scripted part of the games, there's stuff that has to happen. And there's very, very few, but even those that exist in Cash Cab are very brief. When contestants say something, and I pick up on it and I can interject something in the moment in real time. It always blows the producers away because it's not scripted. It's, right. you know, we're not telling the contestants what to say. They come up with a ridiculous answer or uh, a, a very funny interaction amongst them. I latch onto it to a, for a moment and then I get back to the agenda. Um, so that's the combination of host and comic at the same time. And that to me is as far as I got as a stand-up comic with regards to the art of crowd work. I don't, I never, when I'm headlining, spend a huge amount of time, but I cherish those moments where something happens or someone says something from the crowd. You come up with a great zinger in the moment. For me, my the the masterful accomplishment that I got comes from more being confident with your material. So there's a while in your career that you 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 move up the the ladder and you're eventually co-featuring or you're doing like, you know, 20, 30 minutes and then eventually you're headlining and the first few times you're getting that much time on stage, you're like in a panic, right? Cuz you're going to like I don't want to look at my notes, I want to remember everything and then you go through a stretch of time when you're a headliner and as a headliner even in Canada, you're doing you know, it's not always the case, but you're usually doing 45 minutes, sometimes longer. Uh, it's a long time to listen to one person. And so you have to have a lot of material. And so early in my headline port of part of my career, to be disrupted was hard because I, I didn't have as much confidence with the material. Eventually, you get to a point after, a, you know, over a decade headlining, you get to the point where you're confident enough with your material that you can leave 
engage a moment in the stage and like sugar sammy or you you know anyone else who's got that skill you you can be talking doing something funny whether it be a bit or interactive in the moment and also be knowing in your mind when you're going to come back and to what chunk of material it's a it's a beautiful moment as a performer where you're talking and being funny and performing out loud and also you can see five minutes ahead oh i'll be able to bring it back to here that's a that's a beautiful spot. Now, that's as far as I got. Some of the some of the comedians, like who you've mentioned, and other people can think of others who spend like a twenty minutes on crowd work. I never did that much. I was always like, have a fun moment, and then artfully bring it back to my material so that the audience is doesn't even know what happened. That's that's to me the the skill that I that I felt the most confident that I had perfected over over a period of time. Now, being the brand that you are, and you're obviously well-known throughout Canada, where, was there ever that uh, sort of urge to please the American crowds? Was there ever that pull uh, into the States, like, I need to make it down there? Or was this home always for you? Canada will always be home. Well, I got caught up in that a little bit. I've had some American television, and every time you get a chance to perform in New York on TV or in Los Angeles on TV, you're like, oh, this could be, this could be it. You know, like you, you get caught up in the whole machine and it, well, obviously, and that never happened. I'm in a unique position that I'm a dual citizen, so I can actually work in the States. I don't have the challenges that are inequitable obstacles for Canadian comedians trying to work uh, and have, you know, the more of an acting chops. Like there's, you know, there's more of a reason to move to L.A., or to New York, if in addition to doing stand-up, you also have some acting chops, which, you know, I've done a little acting, but I'm more of a host. So, you know, you don't move to LA to, you know, try your luck at getting a game show. <laughs> it's like, it's not like the big drive. <laughs> so I, I did get wrapped up in that a little bit. And fortunately for me, I was, you know, and I continue to be very satisfied with the opportunities that exist if you call Canada home. And still are able to work abroad and do other stuff. But again, I'm in a unique position. So I've done, for instance, tours of the States uh, in, in live venues that a lot of comics couldn't do or they'd have to do under the table because I was able to do it. So it's not really fair for me to say, well, everybody, every comedian should be calling Canada home and be able to work and then, you know, take their work abroad, you know, especially to the States and then come back. Um, but that's why I've been putting so much energy into the foundation for Canadian comedy, CanCom, which is very much about trying to balance out the inequities that Canadian comedians feel when it comes to getting produced media opportunities, being able to tour vertically, which is another business term, you you know, being able to tour domestically, uh, which is challenging for for Canadian comedians because of our population and our geography. Uh, but there's so many more opportunities as a comedian to earn a living if you're able to just go, you know, if you're in Toronto or Montreal, go down to New York, uh, do you, New York State, do, you know, all those cities. If you're living on the West Coast, you could pop down into California, Oregon. There's so many opportunities that Canadian comedians should be able to work in as easily as Americans come to Canada to work and as easily as the festivals bring in international acts from the UK and Australia. You know, for someone who's a foreign Canadian or a foreign comedian coming to Canada, <laughs> and and we love it, right? right. Absolutely, as audiences and as comedians, I love sharing the stage with exceptional acts from around the world. It's amazing when they're you know on our club stages or on our festival stages. 
But if it was as easy for us to travel the UK and Australia and America, that's when you can get really excited as a Canadian comic. But for people coming to Canada to work, it's literally a couple of bucks. You, you fill out a piece of paper. Whereas if you're a Canadian comedian, you want to go to LA or New York, you, you got a, you know, thousands of dollars for a visa, very restrictive. Um, you know, and then you ultimately have to stay there for a period of time and never come back to Canada. Uh, yeah. otherwise you risk losing it. So it's just, you know, you know, we're CanCom is not working on the necessarily the diplomacy of it. We're just trying to create opportunities that make it easier for Canadian comedians to be successful here in Canada and working uh, around the world. And so that's why we've got the first ever comedy grants. We uh, we also did uh, a massive symposium, which was money directly from the Department of Canadian Heritage for a program that was created by comedians. It was managed by comedians. It was for comedians. It's never been done before. Our priority is to make the Canadian comedian the priority, which not very many organizations, whether they be for profit or not for profit, have ever done. Just that alone, to me, is a resume that is that is impressive because you've done a lot of work, obviously, with CanCom, with Cask. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the mayor of comedy with Sandra Madalini, who we know you were featured in that as well. And that struggle of artists moving or trying to get recognition into the States and, and that whole process. Um, obviously it's gotten better, but do you feel that there are a lot more of the gatekeepers kind of holding the barricades down in Canada when it comes to projects getting green light, um, uh, comics trying to, get that you know special up online and every, everything now is, seems very self-produced and not a lot of the gatekeepers i'm using air quotes but gatekeepers want to stand behind sort of not comics yes or or content creators if you want to loop them in but projects that they they have worked on but yet sit dormant on a shelf somewhere that no one took the time to to look at or or it doesn't really meet our target audience or this or that or it gets rebundled and next thing you know you know jerry d is hosting because we work with jerry d we like them and it's not they don't take the risks i hear that a lot in the industry of canadian media is the gatekeepers don't take risks how do you feel with with the organizations that you've worked with that could someday change or or be a little bit more you know open the doors a little bit more wider because in america that's all we hear is everybody takes risk to put that guy on air. The stupid YouTube videos. They made an entire show out of it because somebody took a risk on it. I, I, do you think that the gatekeepers are risk takers? I think there is more risks being taken, especially when it comes to comedy that mm -hmm. has Canadian roots in terms of the creators, the writers, the stars. And I think that there's more and more shows that are being created. If you, I think you have to look at it as a per capita, our right. population is just not as large as America and our geography is restricted. So we're never going to be, it's, we, we are not going to be the machine that is Hollywood or New York, right? So we have to look at what are the things that support an increase in the amount of risk taken on new talent and emerging acts, as well as expanding those that are tried and true. And I, I'm seeing that there's a lot more happening and that's why CanCom exists to support that in a way that's never been supported. So we're filling gaps, typically further upstream, if you will, 
to develop talent so that there's more talent for the producers, the gatekeepers, quote unquote, to select from, to take it. But when you look at the, 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 the portfolio of Canadian shows, for instance, it's really helped on the one hand to have the streamers part of the mix to really inspire more risk-taking and creativity from what are called the traditional or incumbent broadcasters like Bell Media and Rogers and uh, Videotron and, and whatever, you know, whatever, whatever else exists in the land, in landscape at any given time, but especially when you look at Bell and Rogers. And what gives us the competitive advantage is in fact what a lot of, it's, I think it's unfortunate there's a lot of misunderstandings about what the uh, online streaming act is all about and about what funding for Canadian or Canadian content comes from, from public dollars through the department right. of Canadian heritage. You know, I understand from a comics perspective that then there's the potential for that to feel like it's restrictive or limiting and you have to do this. And we, you know, in our truest sense, sometimes feel as if anything that there's rules, we push back on them, but those are in fact the competitive advantages that, you know, if the streamers are also in, you know, regulated so that they have to contribute to that kind of risk taking with Canadian talent, then it will happen. And it's exactly those kind of obligations that are sometimes frowned upon, but actually inspire the creative risk that we're talking about. And I'm, this is not necessarily a risk, but when you look at Letterkenny and the Shorzy world, this yeah. mo monumental deal that's been struck with new metric and crave for, you know, you know, I think it's like 49, like let's say call it 50 episodes up front. This has never been done this way in Canada before. And the reason I think that, you know, obviously there's the talent of Jared Kiso uh, and all the, the writing team involved with that, but there's also the, the need for Crave uh, as a, as the, the streaming branch of Bell Media to be competitive in the landscape with all the other streamers because of the obligations that are going to be coming at them. They wanted to get ahead of the game. Um, and if there, if those didn't exist, you know, it's so much cheaper for Canadian broadcasters to buy pre-made American stuff that's not with our talent, that's not from our perspective. Don't get caught up in it. It's like, what do you, we have to do Canadian content, so we have to talk about, like, you know, beavers. It's like, it's not that. <laughs> it's, you know, there's a reason Canadians are known around the world for being funny. It's our own sensibilities. It's our brand. It's our, it's our perspective. It's our lens on the world, looking at America, our next door neighbors, looking at the world from a Canadian perspective. It doesn't have to be about maple syrup and back bacon. Um, but, you know, and then you look at the, the quintessential stuff like Shorzy, very Canadian feel, Letterkenny, very Canadian feel, but relatable around the world. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the focus that that Cancom really wants to continue to support, you know, so much more content that's coming out. And and in fact, people prepare to take the risks on emerging talent and uh, underrepresented voices, um, you know, diff different lived experiences, right, that yeah. that are totally relatable and funny. Being totally relatable and funny, uh, we switched to the moment of this uh, sort of conversation where. Uh, we come up to the roller coaster on wheels. That is the show you are most, I guess, most known for, Cash Cab. How did that start? Was it like down to a couple people to host this, or was were you the guy that they thought of all along? No, I, I, well, you, you never know for sure. I feel right. I, 
honestly feel that the reason I got Cash Cab as the host is three reasons. Number one, I'm a host first. They needed a host first. Number two, I have comedic chops. And they really wanted a comedian to host this, to have those sensibilities. But they couldn't have us. They honestly, they couldn't have a stand up. They might not have known this or articulated this, mm-hmm. but the nature of that show is you couldn't have a stand up comic make it about them, uh, the whole ride in the cash cab. You had to right. make it about the contestants. Uh, and then the third reason, and I am 100% committed to this, is that I, I have kids. Uh, I've, I'm very accustomed to entertaining people in the backseat, uh, and multitasking <laughs> while I drive a hundred percent. Cause I, I know, uh, a handful of the, like they probably auditioned a, a few hundred people, you know, when the casting net goes out, all the casting right. directors, uh, submit who they think would be a great person to, you know, to host the show. Nobody really knew what it was at the time. And <laughs> so, I know a handful of people that, you know, for sure were seen on the first round and then we're in the, in the final considerations. And honestly, you know, I, I just think the, the, you know, this is what I always say from a career standpoint, you, you, you need to be ready and poised for success when the opportunity comes along. It's not all luck that I got cash cab, but the timing was right. I had the right assets at the time and the people that they were considering, you know, a lot of factors, like maybe a couple of other A-listers were not available to even audition. And so everything aligned so that I had the right skill set and was fortunate enough that in that time, they honestly really believed that, you know, they, you're driving, when you're driving the cash cab, it's a, it's a quarter million dollar TV studio on wheels. There's like that's cameras that everywhere. That's my mind. Yeah. The ceiling, you know, you can't have somebody that's going to run into the curb or, you know, be lurching around. Like you got to be able to drive, right, ask well, questions. <laughs> and here, oh, here's the, here's the last little random. So I'm committed to those three reasons. Three. Okay. Yeah. Even, even though there are other people I know that, that auditioned would have been spectacular. And I just, I got, I got lucky, but I think another thing that, that made it, uh, happen for me is in the audition process, I was a little bit later in the day and the producers who were pretending to be contestants who were riding along in the back. These are the people Mm -hmm. who ended up making the show. Everybody got a script of questions that you could memorize and prepare for, for your audition. By the time I auditioned, they were so tired of those same questions. They just handed me a box of Trivial Pursuit cards. And they Ah. said, just pick out a card and ask a question. We can't even answer those questions again because they were trying to be spontaneous and pretend to be contestants for the, for the, so that the, the broadcaster could see what the whole dynamic looked like. But they were so bored. They just, and I was like, oh, so. I don't get to do the prepared questions. All of a sudden I'm reading, you know, uh, or trying my best to drive and read, which, you know, obviously uh, I can do. Uh, and their energy was better as a result of that. Yeah. Um, when you watch the show and, it, and this is the thing that I, I don't think a lot of people know. There are many versions of the show variations. I mean, it started in, correct me if I'm wrong, but Britain, it is a British show in its origin and yeah. there's been Cash Cab in America. There was, I think, that Chicago edition at one point. I think there was even a Quebec edition. There is, the, there is a, there is a Quebec edition. It's not really in the Cash Cab franchise family. It is a franchise oh. show, Cash Cab. Uh, it's called in Quebec. It's called Taxi Peon, and okay. um, uh, so it's not. 
it's not really, you know, authentic cash cab franchise, but it's the same idea. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, there's going to be kind of pushed out of a ditch, out of a snowbank. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I honestly haven't seen, there has been at one point in time, a cash cab in over 30 different countries. It's a total wow, franchise show. Yeah. It was only, it was only in Britain where it started for one season. And then the, that company franchised it out and, and has sold it around the world. I think the Canadian version is one of the longest lasting uh, second to the American version. And uh, I honestly don't watch the other versions because I really, right from the beginning, I didn't want to emulate anybody else. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. In, in terms of how they were handling it. But I know from what the producers say is the Canadian and the American versions uh, put most, the most time and energy into the production elements. So it really looks slick and, and good for a game show. It It doesn't, you know, some people might have thought like the, the appeal of it is, is cheap and cheerful. Well, you still want to make it look good. Like the, right. the time that the Canadian producers for sure put into the graphics and the editing, they put a lot of love into making the show. And I think that's really helped in terms of the visual uh, appeal. And so, um, you know, I think that our, comp it is very Canadian and, and that is a reflection, not just of me hosting and my sensibilities, some of the game elements, we get permission to introduce unique elements. Like, for instance, in Vancouver, we did the bridge bonus. Um, in uh, in Cash Cab Canada, we've typically done a swap out uh, with the dispatcher. That's not in any other Cash Cab. So you have a little oh. bit of creative license that right. you make it your own. And this latest season is Cash Cab Music. The entire season, 26 episodes, is all music-inspired trivia. Uh, it could be about movie soundtracks. It could be a little pop culture zeitgeist. And so what we've done at the end, uh, instead of the video bonus to double your money in Cash Cab Canada's music edition, it's Cash Cab Karaoke. And so uh -huh. it's like a, a whole different spin. But also, again, talking about taking risks and the market changing for the, you know, this was was never on the table when I first got, we did eight seasons of Cash Cab originally, and it was almost 10 years before we made this latest season. So a lot has changed. So this season is made by Anthem um, Media and Entertainment, and Anthem owns not only game TV in Canada, but a station, a subscription channel in the States called Access, A-X-S. So for the first time ever, to the best of my knowledge, a cash cab is being made for two different countries at once. And they're marketing mm -hmm. it as cash cab Canada, which was a, a bit of a worry for me. I didn't want it to be like, you know, Ben Bailey is the American host and he's a hero mm -hmm. down there. He's a, he's an Emmy winning award-winning television host and cash cab USA proper for discovery down there is an exceptional version version of the show. So I didn't want it to be like anybody to think that I'm replacing Ben. Um, and they said, no, we're marketing. In fact, they bought old episodes of Cash Cab Canada and are airing them in the States to help build the brand. And the response has been really great because people who love game shows, people who love Cash Cab are going, oh, it's just another version for us to enjoy. And right. so that's never happened before, to the best of my knowledge, that the show is being made for two different countries at once and marketed it as not generic, but as, you know, Canadian okay. comedian. Adam Grow from Canada is hosting this version. And I just, that was, that to me was just a, a huge uh, nod to the success we've built with the Canadian brand of the show. 
Okay, two questions because it always, yeah. it always, it's up. I've always wanted to ask you these things, sort of things. And when you watch the show, I kind of, kind of like to classify it as a stopwatch show. You don't know when it's on. It's always in syndication. But when it's on, you stop and you watch. You kind of throw away the remote, and then you get sucked in. You're like, oh, I, I, I know that. I know, like, why? Just say that, and you just like, and you get sort of reeled into the whole dynamic of the show. As you mentioned, it's a massive television studio on wheels. Has there ever been? I'm not critiquing your driving, but in, as far as you know, maybe not you, but maybe you've heard in other countries. Has there ever been an accident on road with the cash cab? No, no, there's never <laughs> been an accident. Well, I mean, I, I don't know about other countries for sure. Yeah. Uh, I've never heard of anything. Right. There, there was, like, honestly, it's actually, this might sound like I'm, you know, I'm making up like my own rhetoric on this, but <laughs> it's actually, it's actually safer. Not only am I a really talented, good driver and multitasker, yeah. that that's absolutely, I, I don't deny that. And it, oh, in the okay. wrong hands, it could have been like really clunky, but so I've got the, the skill set. I'm an exceptional driver. I can totally manage multitasking. There's never a worry, but it's actually safer because I'm not going, I'm going like, 30 40k at all times because it is a television studio so you think right. about uh, you know even driving in toronto even just you know the road construction potholes crossing street <laughs> car tracks there's a lot of rattling and bumping and so if i'm going you know 60. in sections where, where <laughs> you're allowed to go 50 or 60 you know it's just a, an editing nightmare so i'm always right. going really slow uh, I've got a, a chase van, a whole van of people behind me about a block away who can see everything, not only on camera, but also ahead of me. And once I surprise people, I have a producer riding shotgun with me. So I've got ah. eyes. I've got eyes everywhere. Right. And yes, I'm particularly proud of my skills, but <laughs> it's unlikely that anything would happen because we're going so slow and it's so cautious and we're and we're and we've got so many eyes for cyclists whatever i found that you know there was you know for instance there was one time i think it was towards the end of season five in toronto um i was just kind of you know when you do a slow roll up to a light correct uh, and you're just kind of like you take your foot off the brake you're idling forward someone that was edging into the left turn lane um, all of a sudden stopped and i literally nudged their bumper you oh. know trying to pass trying to pass like you know they were kind of going into the left turn and i just kind of and it was like there was not even a scratch but it was embarrassing to me there was two embarrassing moments for me as the driver that was one of them because i had contestants, had contestants and in the car i had contestants and it was like <laughs> it was like a little it was like a little bunk like this but, you know, we had to get out and look and the guy was like, oh, you, what are you doing? You know, like, you know, like, you know, and it was like, there was nothing. Right. So right. that's the one time in now nine seasons that there was like, a, you know, even like a contact between me and a, and, a, and another vehicle. <laughs> the only other embarrassing time for me as a driver was also in Toronto and I'm in game with contestants and all of a sudden I get rollers in the rear view cops pulling really okay yeah. this ought to be good and i'm like i'm like what what did i burn a stop sign like i'm really i really am an attentive you know and i even yeah. when i'm even when i'm not driving the show i'm like 
I don't want to break any law. I'm like that kind of, you know, by the rules kind of guy. And so contestants were like, what is going on? I pull over, cop comes up to the window and he literally does the same thing. Knocks on the window. I, I bring the window down and he's like, oh, you, you know, like, how do you not know it's the cash cab? The lights are going, but he didn't really think of it. And I said, hi, officer. Sorry. Uh, if I missed something, I really apologize. And he goes, you were going a little too slow in an active lane. He pulled me over for going, for too, going slow. too slow, well, which is, I guess, legitimate. Like if you see on the highway, sometimes if you go into the States, it's like the speed limit is X and the minimum speed is Y, right? So they want to keep things moving. So Correct. there's actually in Toronto traffic bylaws, if the speed limit is 40, you can't go 20. They want you to, you know, keep it going. So yeah, I was going with the pace. That's to, that's to my point. I was going too slow, too cautious. So no ticket or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know why it must've been a slow day. Like really, you know, and maybe he saw that I was a cab uh, and just thought, you know, like maybe he was thought like that's suspicious. Right. You know, so I, I always like to give the benefit of the doubt, you know, like cab drivers are uh, uh, precarious workers. Maybe there was a reason cabbie was going so slow. Maybe he was being robbed or whatever. So I always like, he never said that to me, but I always like to give the benefit of the doubt. Like, yeah. why was this cop looking uh, for a make work to pull over a taxi that was going 20 in a, in a 40 zone? Sure. Uh, your but, hamster's uh, on your wheel. You're thinking of every yeah. scenario. <laughs> um, but that was, th those were the only two embarrassing moments. The vast, like, you know, you think about the hundreds of games and the hundreds of contestants that I've met. Most of them, the, the praise I get is like, we go 20 plus blocks from to their destination. And they're like, we're here. Like you didn't even notice you were driving, <laughs> you know? And a lot of people that we surprise on the show are like, you, you actually are driving. They, right. they don't believe often. They don't believe two things. They don't believe I'm actually driving. They think I'm on one of those trailers, like, you know, carpool karaoke, like James Corden, who's just being driven around yeah, the but city. That, and, that's so like, unauthentic then. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I'm actually driving and, and people also don't believe that the ceiling lights are real. They think that those are added in post-production. And so ah. they're blown. And the new ceiling, by the way, for the new cash cab, like, because the technology is so much better right. than it was 10 years ago. It is amazing. Uh, and so, you know, people are just blown away. And that's, you know, for me, the really great part about being a part of that show and helping to build it is so many people because of repeats and because of how long ago it first started airing. I mean, we first started making it 15 years ago. There are people who grew up on the show with their stop and watch behavior, like you said, yeah. and they're, um, and they're now being surprised in the cab and they're just like, their, their minds are being blown. They're just like, they can't, <laughs> I can't believe I watched the show with my parents and now I'm on the show. It's amazing. Now, can you book the cab? Like, how do you, because it's completely random. I mean, it's a minivan essentially. Right. And it pulls over to the side of the street and you get in and you don't know you're in a, the cash cab until that door closes and the yeah. lights come on. Nobody so, knows that nobody knows that they're getting in the cash cab. And, you know, for the narrow window that we're in production. So for instance, this time around, and this is not like if we get greenlit for season two, which I hope we do, uh, we won't necessarily be recording the season at the same time, but we were in production ah. through the month, through the month of August, August and the month of September. So like a little bit of dovetail end of July, beginning of right. October. So for two months of the year, four days a week, you know, we're on the road 
um, surprising people with cash cabs. So you would have to be really lucky to, you know, <laughs> go park yourself on a corner downtown Toronto and hope to randomly hail uh, the cash cab. So it does take luck and nobody who, who gets in knows in advance that they're getting in the cash cab. And that's why I think, you know, like when you talk about watch your, your stop and watch behavior or your discerning television, you know, people who love densely scripted comedy or intriguing drama or sci-fi or documentary are also the same people who don't mind a little stop and watch once in a while, right? They, right, they, right you know, right. call it a guilty pleasure. But the reason I think Cash Cab is particularly appealing is not only that you don't have to be invested and have watched previous episodes to enjoy a couple of minutes of it, but it's just authentic, high-density fun. What, what I feel really is strongly created in the Cash Cab is I very quickly make the contestants feel comfortable to be themselves and it's trivia questions funny moments that happen and a really quick most games are under eight minutes some of them are like three or four minutes long total and so you're just immersed in this high density fun and even when you watch your favorite reality competition shows or like the bachelorette or whatever like stuff like that there's a lot of them you can tell that even though it's scripted reality or unscripted television the narratives are kind of you know suggested if you will right. to the <laughs> you and you and even if you're not in the business you can kind of just tell whereas with cash cab contestants when they're pissed at each other for getting a question wrong or when they strike out or when they get one right you can't fake it like i'm <laughs> i'm not stopping cameras and go you know what give me a little more excitement could you give me more passion no it's them just average canadians saying ridiculous things having amazing reactions and when you watch you can't help but go you know that that's authentic emotion and that's to me what cash cab uh, has in terms of a competitive advantage it, it, you know we create those moments in collaboration and because people know the brand and I take a moment, once I surprise people, I take a moment to turn around, talk right. to them really quickly. So they make eye contact with me so that they trust me and people have come to know that I'm not there to make fun of them. But if I have fun with them because they've done something ridiculous, they, <laughs> they're, they're not holding back, right? They, yeah. they trust that it's happening. And, uh, and so you know, it's, it is a game show. It is about trivia. I know that I always have the context. I don't think it's anything other than what it is, but it's exceptional within the genre that it is. I kind of always want to wrap up the uh, the podcast with kind of like a rapid fire of questions. But as soon as I give an answer, someone goes off on a tangent with another story. But um, with you, I've kind of customized it in a way, not that I'm going to cash cab you into this question and answer period, but uh, I like to always start off with your favorite comedian influence growing up? Well, I mean, I've had a lot of influences and it always, it, this is not rapid fire because it's, it, there's so <laughs> many people to talk about. I, I happened to just last week, see Steve Martin and Martin short live oh in concert. God, I want to watch that show. <laughs> and I wouldn't say that they were the first early influences on me comedically, but SCTV, absolutely. And Steve Martin's work and uh, certainly reflecting back on the fact that he was one of the first stadium stand-up comics to sell out these big stadiums and then transition to film and television. The people that really resonate to me are people who have uh, comedy chops, but can also be on screen. So 
Billy Crystal was a big influence on me because one of my dreams was to host and still is to host the Oscars. And I have no business hosting the Oscars. I mean, there are some comedians who have eventually like, you know, people who have had no business. Like I love David Letterman, but you know, people would argue, why did he host the Oscars? You know what I mean? Like there's still a hope if you get big enough and you're not in film, but Billy Crystal to me was he can act, he can do comedy, he can sing, he can do all these things. So I'm like, he did it with such class too. Yeah. And you know, when I watch Steve Martin and Martin short, I'm like, I'm, I'm a zero threat. Like, whereas they're like a triple threat. They can like Steve Martin plays the banjo. Uh, Martin short can carry a tune. Like, you know, he's not a recording artist, but it's just amazing to me. And sometimes you see acts like that and you, it can be daunting, but I find it like, you know, I'm not them. My body of work is never going to be them, but I can be inspired to be the best me. When I look at those two talented people in their late seventies, mid seventies, late seventies, still going at it. I can only hope. And so (laughs) really to go really further back, honestly, I'll quickly name some of the influences on me. Howie Mandel, Carol Burnett, well, yep. Bob Newhart, yep. uh, Bob Barker, and Johnny oh. Carson, right? Wow. Uh, and 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 lastly, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy was the <laughs> first stand-up special I had ever seen. And I was like obviously a kid at the time. You know, some people weren't born uh that might be listening I, to this. Same thing, when, same thing. When Delirious came out, I was like, we watched it on a VHS tape at one of my buddies' houses. When Eddie Murphy performed Delirious, I was like, what? is going on. Like I had no experience of Richard Pryor and George Carlin. And, you know, I was a kid, so he was my first introduction to a standup. I eventually saw him live in Vancouver. Um, But the reason I I throw all those names out is that I don't identify, I don't look at Carol Burnett and go, Oh, that's me on stage. But I just love the way she hosted and kind of brought down the fourth wall at the beginning of her show. Uh, John Ritter, for instance, another one, Um, you know, and the reason I mention all these names is because, you know, there's, there's not necessarily one, but there's different moments that you kind of see people that you go like, I can kind of, I, I want to be like that, even though they're, you know, they're not me. Right. Right. Um, and as a kid, for instance, I thought Bob Barker and Johnny Carson basically did the same job because I was like, you know, I didn't, I was under 10, you know? And so that's why maybe my affinity to host a game show is I, I thought Johnny Carson was a game show host. But of course, a very different yeah. genre. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, as a comic now, you know that they're, they're not the same things. But that's maybe why I thought, you know, I would kill to host a game show because I'm, you know, I'm doing what Bob and Johnny did. Um, but then I also saw how Eddie Murphy could hold an audience in a live environment and go, wow. I mean, the skill uh, to be able to do that. And then I've had moments where I've performed, like, you know, whether it be at a big comedy festival and it's 2,000 people in the audience, or whether it be um, in a comedy club where it's only a couple of hundred, to have an audience just following every breath you take and every bit you deliver is, you know, you, you know, you can't believe you're, it's happening for you. After well, yeah, it goes back to what we were discussing about that. And everyone that you kind of mentioned from Billy Crystal to Eddie Murphy, I mean, there's certain people that fit in a wheelhouse, but then when you go Eddie Murphy, they all have sort of this charismatic charm that, yes, relates you back to this is an experience that you're sharing with someone either in a room, through the TV. It feels like they're speaking directly to you because they're holding your attention span in a way that you would never think. It could be unleashed, and and there's a vast difference between your Carol Burnett and your Eddie Murphy. So I can totally 
everyone that you mentioned, I could totally see in you, but yeah. that just spawned me to my next question. Is there a darker, more grittier side to Adam Grove? Is there like I think a, a blue collar version? <laughs> well, in terms of my comedy, the, the closest I would get is like, you know, I've certainly done the campuses over the years. Right. Um, and you have to be a little bit more. You, I, you, actually, I shouldn't say that. You don't have to be. I, you know, you think you might have to be a little bit more vulgar, a little bit more blue. And so there's definitely a little bit more um, of that oriented con content. I've, I remember a couple of bits that I've written that I still include in my act, depending on where I'm at, not necessarily a corporate show, that other comedians that, that happen to be there on the night and the first times they heard this, I can't believe that's coming from Adam Grow, Mr. Middle of the Road. Like, I can't believe you're talking about that. But for, for me, those bits came up uh, organically. My favorite bits from me are ones that were written in reaction to something real that happened, as opposed to me sitting down and going, I need to write a bit about this. Uh, okay, getting back to the rapid fire, as I mentioned. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, There's no rapid fire with me. That's no, I it. understand. Your favorite comedy movie that you're stop and watch. Whenever it's on, you just got to stop and watch it. Oh, so many. Blues Brothers. Nice. Okay. Blues Brothers. Um, and then uh, back to, to Steve Martin, uh, All of Me. Have you okay. seen that one? I have, have seen, seen that. Yeah. Steve Martin and Lily. I think we're Lily the same age genre. I'm not, I'm 40. Yeah. I mean, I'm, so I'm, I'm alienating myself because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid fifties. And so the stuff, you know, but my kids know the blues brothers, maybe only okay, because of yeah, it. Um, but you know, when those movies come on, um, Caddyshack and other circa. Is it you nostalgia know, like, for you? Is it, that's what kind of pulls you in? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's just certain sensibilities that make me laugh no matter what. So when you see it on camera, you can't help, but enjoy it. So those are the, those are the stop and watch for me that I can think uh, of. Off go, the top of my head. Going back to your standup days, your favorite club to perform at or a place that you just feel the most comfortable to perform at. Well, it was always the laugh resort, which is no longer, no longer there, um, yeah. Uh, I didn't discover the laugh resort till I was back in Toronto many years later and was going, and then it got it, you know, what happens, you become addicted to the mic and you just were looking for whatever <laughs> stage you can find to do stand up comedy. As soon as I discovered the laugh resort after amateur nights at, at, at other places in Toronto, I knew that it was the place to me, for me. The, the yeah. vibe was right. Um, they were in their old location in the fire hall and then they moved to King street and John for many years. And I was the first to headline the new club. Um, so really really was great but right now for instance for me absolute comedy in yep. toronto i've i've only performed a guest spot at the kingston location but the the toronto and ottawa locations you know jason's done really well to create a a, a room that is great for everybody um audiences and talent alike and ottawa i haven't been there in a long time but it's, it is, if you ever travel to Ottawa and you want to, and you have some time to see some stand up, go to the absolute comedy club in Ottawa. What is on Adam Grove's bucket list or what's the next thing that we're ready to scratch off? Um, I mentioned the Oscars that might be a little bit down the list, but I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do try to keep realistic. I have a couple of show ideas of my own that I'd like to mm -hmm. go into production and I actually have done what most of us do, which is self-produce. I self-produced three episodes of a, a show that I, I really think has got legs. And I've been in development deals with the show concept, but it's never come to life aside from self-producing. So I, I produced, you know, my incorporation to be fair, right. produced it, but I produced it legitimately as it would be for a digital media product. And it's called quiz boss. And so it's obviously, uh, extending my brand, 
right. much like Letter Kenny became Shorzy. You know, I think that there's an opportunity for me to do. And so Quiz Boss is essentially me taking over local pub trivia nights across the country and making them an instant TV game show where they're competing against each other in real time. Uh, and hey. so, you know, like if you go to a trivia night in Toronto, I might be hosting a uh, quiz boss where it's like, you know, Hemingway's in Toronto versus the Fox and Hound in Vancouver. Here we go. And it's all interactive. I've got, I've licensed an app. So people are not only answering the questions oh, in real time in a competition, but they're, you know, they're playing on their mobile phones and then the viewers right. can do the same. And it's, and it's still got a humorous bent uh, because it's me hosting. Um, but it's like, you know, it's taking you know, the trivia fund out of the cash cab and putting it in these venues for a, a, a high octane competition. And I just think there's, there's so much legs to it because people live and breathe trivia. They love their local haunts. They've got their funny team name. These are places that they go on a regular basis. And, I, and so I think there's a lot of potential. I'd like to, you know, see that come to life beyond self-producing is the right, next thing. Right. This is where I think you and I are a lot alike because I love picking your brain about stuff like this. I did the same thing, producing an element quite like this, but comics around a dinner table. I'm not the, I'm saying I'm the best cook, but I enjoy the passion of cooking and, and the art form of cooking. And I produced over the, over the pandemic, a four episodic series of a bunch of comics around a dinner table, talking about the industry, but learning a little bit about what dish and all the, you know, the stories that came up about growing up in certain cultures and mixing comedy, culture, cuisine, all of it together. Uh, and I, I, we were in the sort of development deals as you are as well. And even taking that from province to province and discussing breakdown of Canadian families in a comedic atmosphere. And it's called this tastes funny. And, ah. uh, it was, it was kind of a little thing I'd like to do involving sort of the podcast world as we're discussing. But as we mentioned that late night vibe after comics are done with a set or the conversations you would have in a green room and you put it around a dinner table and I'm the one cooking and kind of orchestrating the whole uh orchestra there yeah so that's well kind of i mean you know your instincts are right and i think if you're listening right now and you're thinking you know obviously it helps to have the the time and resources to do it right but right right now the the technology is there if you're not doing a podcast and i know everybody's like oh another podcast like you know that's like, what you, i thought like, this was oh another but podcast. you but you know what you you have to do it right even if that show doesn't be you're you're creating and producing and building your equity and building your talent. If you're just sitting around and you're still doing the same old, same old, great. You know, you might be discovered, but ultimately people want to do business with people who have a hustle and are likable and are fun to work with. And you're not going to get the skill set of being fun to work with if you're not doing anything, right? So if you're <sighs> in between and you've got ideas, Find a way on whatever shoestring budget you can do it to do what you're doing with uh, this taste funny. You absolutely are in the right place. You just got to do it. Adam, girl, I love you. I love you. That ah, was amazing. Thank you. Uh, if there was a fast food chain in your house to replace your kitchen, what would that fast food chain be? It would be my own fast food chain. Uh, I've always dreamed of having my own fast food chain, and it's called Leftovers. I <laughs> love. Interesting leftovers especially fast food leftovers like what's better really? than cold pizza the next morning cold chinese food uh cold kentucky fried chicken i don't eat any of that stuff on a regular basis <laughs> but anymore anyway uh yeah. i just think there's a real market like if i went to a restaurant and i said you know bring me you know macaroni and cheese from yesterday 
slightly reheated stuff is just tastes better the next day it's had a chance to absorb all the spices and flavors it tastes yeah. better the next day chili, um, if, chili's the best one and wouldn't it be chili's always better the next day chili's good the next day so i don't i don't think i could pick a one fast food restaurant no uh getting back to your stand-up days if you had to go back on the road who would you love slinging shotgun with you who's your, who's oh, your that's, traveling buddy that's too funny like uh I had some of the biggest laughs of my life touring with Winston Spear. Ah. Do you know Winston? I, the, I, the name rings a bell, yes. Yeah. I'm not, I haven't seen him perform, though. I, I'm not sure what he's doing. Uh, you know, I, to be honest with you, I've lost touch with him. But there are some comics, you know, like, like I said, my liability is that I'm not always on. There are mm-hmm. some comics who are authentically always on. And then there are some comics you travel with who are trying to always be on. And the ones that are always <laughs> trying to be on, or just like, can, like, even with my family, I say this, I, I love driving, but sometimes I love driving just to zone out and drive safely, listen to music, or I don't need to be talking and trying to laugh the whole time. So Winston was great like that because he actually produced uh, his own uh, house music for a while. But he also, he knew when to not be on and then when to be on. And, you know, to travel with a comic, like Winston, um, Perry Perlmutter. I've had some fun, w- okay. you know, like, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's still out there. He's still headlining. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's my vintage too. And so I don't know if I could pick a contemporary road comic to, to be fair, because I haven't been in the trenches, but it would have to be a comic who doesn't need to be entertained by me, right? right. Uh, by, and not necessarily entertained by me, but, but entertained by me listening to them. Right, because they need to be feeling like they're <laughs> working on their bits or whatever like that. I like silence as well, right? Uh, and the way I cap off sort of every podcast, Adam Grow, the best advice you ever got in this industry. Best advice I ever got in this industry. And you can take that loosely because you are in many industries. It could have been the best advice in radio, the best advice in comedy, stand-up and television production, but something that sort of resonates with you that, you know what, that can be applied to anything. I think it goes back to my strengths, which are making sure that I'm doing what has been asked of me by the bookers with the expectations of delivering to their audience. So when someone says, okay, I know you're a headliner, but you've been booked for eight minutes stick to your time. Or I know you're a headliner, but this week you're emceeing. So here's here's a few of your headline A-bits that you can't do because they're going to steal the thunder from the headliner. I do what I'm told. And I have Mm -hmm. no problem with that because I... Okay, here's the advice then. Think about any show you're on from a holistic standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. We are already really good at our own bits. We're already really good at focusing on what our skills are, but the better you are at making the whole show better, the more likely you are to get booked again and again and again. That's what I think. Not always about your shine. It's about the shine. It has to start with you. You have to be funny, but if you also get it, you know, like I was started in comedy when there was still, you know, and I also appreciate it at some level, there was still a sensibility in the stand-up world that you actually wanted to go up and kill so bad or <laughs> die such a horrible death that the 
comic after you had to <laughs> work really hard. There was like yeah. this little thing and it was the show within the show for the comedians. I get that. It's fun. It's just not me. And if you're, if you're doing that great and you're successful, but if you're doing that and you're being rogue and you're not getting booked, then you might start to ask questions. Maybe I'm not funny enough to get away with that. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you've got to be an exceptional talent for people to go, Oh, what a pain in the ass that comic is, but they're so good. We're going to book them. How many of us are there like that? Right. Most of us are good enough that we excel and we make a great show and we can be stars, but we're not such, you know, you know, I just, I just think it's very small percentage of comedians that can get away with that. And then, you know, end up, you know, fizzling out or have to do other things personally. I hear you. Totally hear you. Adam, it has been an absolute slice. You are a constant professional. You are oh, an honorable host. You are a hilarious stand-up comic. But more importantly, you can be seen on a new reboot of Cash Cab. Yes. Um, check local listings, all that fun stuff. Follow you on Instagram, obviously, to check show clips. And and you're you're on TikTok, too. I recently found you on. How, oh, yeah. I, I had so much fun on TikTok. Like, I, I, love, I love TikTok. I think, in particular, Gen Z creators are so talented. And so I was always, like, a, a viewer of TikTok. And so I got permission from the producers of Cash Cab to have fun with right. contestants. And it just blew up. It was so much fun. I mean, I'm not viral, viral or anything like that, right. but it, it made sense to me as part of the brand to do fun stuff. It's just like a perfect show, a uh, perfect brand. So I, I do TikToks. Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn. Those are the main platforms I'm on. You are always evolving. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure talking and picking your brain, getting a little insight into Adam and, and everything that you kind of create and the, and the mind behind the artist and the creator that is Adam Grosso. I thank Thanks, you for your Vince. time. Thank you, Vincent. Good luck with uh, this taste funny. Sounds fun. Well, thank you. Yeah. Big help. Yeah. Anything, anything we can do to kind of showcase more Canadian talent. Okay. Thank you. Uh,